thinking not only of the revelation, the manifestation, the, uh, the appearing of the Son of God, but thinking about how uh, we all have a role in his continuing manifestation and the place that the church has in helping other people see him. Uh, but this is not easy because things get lost in translation, especially as we have an increasingly Christian and non-Christian uh, country. The, the dialogue, the conversation, you might say, between the church and the world gets more and more complex and harder and harder. Uh, I had a, a funny experience this week that reminded me of this. Beth was sitting at my desk on Wednesday helping me, I don't know, we are edits, editing something, and she points at what I think is my computer speakers, and she goes, what's that boom, boom? And I think, no, say, I know Beth knows what a computer speaker is. So you just put yourself in my head. You know how this all happens in a split second. But I think, she's Arab. Maybe boom, boom is like Arab slang for a speaker. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is, you know how this goes through your head in a split second. And so I think, oh, well, I'll show her. And so I go to iTunes, and I pick one of my favorite Beach Boys songs, and I blare it on the speakers. And Michelle comes in and, like, shuts the door, like, can you keep your music to yourself? Well, like most of you, you know, my email is set to download, you know, every one minute or 30 minutes. I don't know. It's whatever it is. It's the factory settings. So I can guarantee you I don't even know how to change it. So it must be like every two or three minutes it searches for new email. And when there's email, you know, it kind of goes... You know, there's this little bell sound. And when it doesn't, there's this sort of thud. Do you know what I mean? Like, da da. Well, I must have had my speakers turned up really loud because three minutes later it did it again. And I realized when she said, there, that, that boom, boom. <laughs> and that is the kind of thing that happens all day, every day in our conversation with the world. We say Bible, they hear out of date morals. We say love, they hear hypocritical. We say sin, they hear judgmental. We say values, and they hear right-wing politics. We say marriage, they hear anti-homosexual. And this thing literally goes on all day, every day, in political discourse, in academic discourse, and in personal discourse. And this, by the way, is like why philosophers like to bang on and on and on about the weakness and imprecision of language and how it doesn't work. And this is why people are getting increasingly kind of despairing about our ability to even communicate together. But regarding the conversation between the church and the world, there's at least three things that I've noticed in my time of following Jesus that are always true. One is 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, I say that to say just to remind you that there's a big spiritual battle that's going on as well, that this isn't just about the church's inability to communicate and this isn't just about a kind of rebellion or something that sits in people's hearts who are outside of Christ. There's a third thing going on, and, and it's this genuine spiritual battle where the God of this age really has blinded people's minds. 
And I'll bet if you sat and thought about it for a moment this morning, I'll bet if you just paused to think about your pre-epiphany life, that you could think of things in which you were blind. You would grant me, wouldn't you, the difference between blindness and rebellion? Now, I don't mean to say that we weren't rebellious, but what I mean to say is that there's also sometimes an accompanying blindness in which we are innocent in the sense that it is something that the God of this age is doing to people. Thus, we're called to be light. God and his people, Israel, Jesus and his followers, are called to be light. Jonah was told to go. The disciples, as we read this morning, were called to be fishers of men. Those who are new in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, are called to be his ambassadors. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and we follow him into that work. So the first thing is to say is some people are living in darkness because of a blindedness which is being done to them. The second thing we can say is, is that God has always had people from Abraham to today, including Jonah, who have been sent into that world to try to be salt and light. And the third thing I can, I can say, no matter how discouraged you might be here this morning, that some people are always coming to faith. It is always true. There has never been a time in the 2,000-year history of the church, no matter how hard this conversation has been, there's never been a time in which people were not coming to faith. And people are still coming to faith today. So our readings this morning, though, they guide us into a kind of life, a kind of attitude that is necessary to announcing the epiphany. For instance, if you look at your Jonah reading, it gives us really four ideas, four key kind of concepts about what's going on in this story of Jonah. The first one is God's sovereignty, that God insists on showing mercy to even those who are the furthest away the most hard-hearted. You see the sovereignty of God in the fact that Jonah couldn't run. And in fact, there's kind of a, if you think of Jonah as a prophet, which he is, there's a backstory that's being played out here that, that isn't evangelistic in the precise way that I'm talking about it this morning. The backstory, and, and in a sense, maybe even the bigger story in Jonah is, is that the person of Jonah reminded Israel of their missionary purpose. That even the big bad Assyrians God had a plan for. And so under the sovereign work of God in his life, Jonah finally obeys and goes. Well, Jonah's story is key for us as we think about being the people today in 2012 in Orange County, trying to help others have an epiphany of God. His story is key for us, I think, for this reason. Jonah doesn't refuse to go. Like, well, I don't have time to go through this, but if you just think about it for a second, most people in the Bible who refuse to go, refuse to go because of a perceived weakness. That's not why Jonah refuses to go. Jonah refuses to go because he doesn't want good for them. He's ticked. He's tired of what the Assyrians have done to the world and to his people. And he doesn't want God to do good to them through him. Now, I, I, it is not my place to judge, and, and, and it's not my tendency, and even if it were, I don't have enough information to judge. But I can, I can suppose this, that there are a lot of people in the world today, not least homosexuals and others, do not instinctually believe that the church wishes their good. Not as an instinct, not as a first impulse, as a first impulse, 
not just homosexuals, but other categories of people that just aren't coming to mind right this moment, they do not, as a first instinct, think that we want their good. They perceive us to be a bit like Jonah. Smote their butts, God. We're tired of being called haters. We're tired of trying to do good and be consistently marginalized by society. Come on, God, stand up to, uh, for us, which means beat them down. And this is something like what's going on in Jonah. He wants them punished. But this is the second thing we see in the Jonah message, is the message of God. And the message that was surprising to Jonah is that God loves all people, not just Jews. That's, again, kind of the big provocative thing. If you think of Jonah as a prophet, one of the big provocative things he's saying is, hey, look, Israel, God loves everybody, not just you. The third thing that obviously comes out in the passage is repentance, that the Ninevites believed God. They had a change of mind, of heart, of will. They turned to God. And again, interestingly, these repentant Ninevites were a rebuke or a sign to Israel because what Jonah saw in this was that actually the Ninevites had a softer heart towards God than he did. As a representation of his people, they had a softer heart towards God than Jonah's people did. So I've been thinking all week, is post-Christian America our Nineveh? Are we so bugged by the fact that leave it to beaver and father knows best is gone? Are we so bugged that our privileged position in society is now not only questioned but shattered that we can no longer actually find God's heart for post-Christian people? No matter how that might be expressed, it could plausibly be expressed in all the ways that it has for 2,000 years. You know, even in Jesus' day, there were the zealots who wanted to kill everybody, the pietists who wanted to run from society, the Herodians who wanted to do it through politics. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, other ways in which Christians have done for 2,000 years to basically find a way outside of the real connection with people who are outside of Christ. And it just made me wonder if God is not willing that any should perish... Doesn't that mean that like him, we must at least talk to our enemies? I mean, come on, if the incarnation of Christ, if the in flesh, if the taking on of flesh of almighty God means anything, it means God is willing to speak to his enemies. So I don't even really like the categories of good and enemies, but if you, if you insist on that category... If there are really enemies of the faith, if there are enemies of God, I mean, I don't think that's normally a helpful category for us, but let's just assume that that's the case, even if that is the case. Does not the life and work of Christ at least mean that God was willing to talk to his enemies? And doesn't that at least mean some sort of pattern for us? And this gets to the fourth thing we see in the Jonah passage, and that is that when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, did not destroy them. And this, of course, shows us that God has great love and patience and forgiveness. And again this morning, I just invite you to think of your pre-epiphany self. I mean, what were you really like before you had some knowledge of God? What was really going on in your life? And now, to sort of draw this to the way we're working Epiphany this year is not with political reference and not even with a legal reference, 
but purely personally and spiritually, think now the Mexican-American family in Santa Ana with immigration issues. Or the 35-year-old lady in Irvine about to be laid off from the bank she works at. What about the oppressed, the poor, those in trouble of their own making, trapped and in some sort of bondage? In a, stuck in sort of a pre-epiphany state. And it, it asks us to think through our heart in the way Jonah had to think through his. And the reading in Corinthians tells us that this whole business of announcing the epiphany is, uh, uh, it's one of those things where time is of the essence. There, there's an urgency to it. Of the way Eugene gets this in the message, he says there's no time to waste. So don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Keep it simple. Whether in marriage, grief, joy, whatever, keep it simple. Even in ordinary things, your daily routine, such as shopping and so on. And I love this sentence. Deal as sparingly as possible with the things the world thrusts on you. I mean, we're, there's just some things we're not going to be able to get away with. People are going to be, I mean, get away from. People are going to be born and people are going to die and there's going to be hardship. There's going to be things that we cannot get away with. We have to deal with the world. But deal with it if you want to be a part of this thing that God's doing as sparingly as possible. For the world you see is on its way out. And that's not just sort of a last times eschatological statement that someday the world is gonna be over, but it, it means also something like it is already changing. That as our gospel reading said, the kingdom of God has come. It's been inaugurated in our midst. It will someday be consummated, but it's happening. But what Paul wants us to see that when it comes to manifesting the epiphany to others, there is an urgency of the hour. I thought back this week that when I was, I guess, in my 30s or something, I used to go all over uh, America doing conferences and seminars called the urgency of the hour. That was back when I wanted to be an evangelist so bad. And I just utterly failed, but whatever. <laughs> So I used to go around talking about the, you know, the urgency of the hour and, and painting for people this picture of how politics and how economics, though important, are just a backdrop. That what's really happening is who goes where and who's really following Jesus and who's not. And it's something like that that I think Paul is trying to bring to the front of our mind that it is true the stock market's going to go up and down and Democrats and Republicans are going to win and lose elections. And while those things are important, the only thing that's going to last in your life is the kind of person you become. Nothing else is going to last. I mean, right now, if you put a gun to my head and made me bet, I would bet that Holy Trinity Church will last 50 or 100 years. It, this church could likely last for generations and generations. It probably will, but it's not going to last forever. But you know what will last forever? The kind of person I become in the conduct of my ministry. That will last forever. This church, in a sense, is not God's project. I'm God's project. You're God's project. Not what you get a paycheck for. That's your job. Your vocation, as we read in Mark this morning, is to become followers of Jesus. And so what this business of followership and what Paul's getting at is meant to say something like this, to organize our goals in life such that the things that connect us to this world, the things that we can't get away from, budgets and debts and investments and partnerships, that they're just all kept modest and manageable 
so that we can serve the Lord as unencumbered as possible. Now, this is all made really personal in our gospel reading this morning, if you want to look at it, where Jesus brings this message saying that God's personal rule and reign is coming and that it's bringing freedom and justice and hope to all people. But it also comes with an invitation to come follow me, he said, and I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. And the kind of prophetic thing happening in this passage is to say this to us, that Jesus' claim on our lives, and this goes along with our reading in Corinthians, Jesus' claim on our lives disrupts our former allegiances and our way of life. And that it gives us a new vocation, no matter what our job is, of learning to follow him and to do so for the sake of others. We learn to follow him, we grow in Christ-likeness, but we do so for the sake of others. And the picture I think we need to get, living in this time of tension as we do between the church and the world, and also living in this time of incredible busyness, is I think we have to learn to see evangelism and or just service to the world as not one more task to add to an already over-busy, over-committed, over-debted, over-calendared life. If we see it as that, we'll never do it. Rather, it has to become a new way of being in the life that you now actually live. What if evangelism, you need to hear this, what if evangelism simply can start by learning to be alert in the life that you now live? What if evangelism could start as simply as just learning to be present to the people who are now in your life? They're already there, just sort of waiting as divine appointments for us to engage with them. And something like that is what has to happen because all of us are too busy to add one more thing to our life. And if we consider it that way, it'll never happen. But what if we thought this sort of subversive thought, the life that I'm presently living counts? It's okay to be a student. It's okay to be a teacher. It's okay even to be a lawyer, so I hear. Um, Or an investment banker, so I hear. Uh, You know, the life that you're presently living, whether New York City or St. Louis or San Francisco or Orange County, no matter where you're living it, what if this whole business of being fishers of men begins with the idea that your actual life counts? Well, following, as Jesus invites us to do in the gospel message, of course implies a leaving. And in the same way Abraham had to get up and leave everything and follow, Jesus asks us to leave everything and follow. Well, following doesn't just imply a leaving, it also implies a destination. And in Christ, that destination is, of course, the cross, where we die to ourselves and we pick up a superior kind of life that then gets made permanent and eternal in the resurrection. Well, if the 12 actually became this, what does that teach us? I'll tell you what it teaches us, a learning curve. Because these were bumbling guys who got it wrong as much as they got it right. And so I just want to say to you this morning, if this morning you hear this call, this Jonah-like call, this call that gets your life reorganized, as Paul says in Corinthians, this life that gets a really specific and personal point put on it to follow Jesus, that is going to be a learning curve for you and just be at peace. 
Just that has to be okay. I just know so many people who they, they never get up and do this because they know they're gonna fail and they can't stand failure. And you just have to be at peace with this is a learning curve. Well, let me say this as a last thought. I wanna suggest, maybe surprising to you, Psalm 62, as an attitude for evangelism in post-Christian Orange County, and here's what I mean. And it hit me again Friday night as we were doing evening prayer, and there were a group of us, I can't remember who, sort of you know, clumped at the door going out, and we all kind of looked at each other and said, man, this is really powerful, huh? How weird that a kind of quiet rhythm of prayer and, and Eucharist and readings can be so absolutely powerful. And I think it's not just powerful for us, but I think, I, I don't know why God's waiting, uh, but that's a subject for another day. I just think that as we become the kind of people who can embody this here, even in our worship services, that it will become itself evangelistic. And what does Psalm 62 teach us but to wait on God? Quiet our souls in solitude and silence. Which then leads to an inner peace and strength wherein we know and experience what the psalmist said, that my help and glory are in God, this granite strength and safe harbor God. And then we have this invitation, therefore, to trust him completely and absolutely, to lay our lives on the life for him, knowing that God is a safe place to be. What our readings teach us this morning, and I, I just pray you grasp this, that it's not the world that has an essential givenness to it, but rather the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That's what has an essential givenness and that it's gonna last forever. This is not a naive escapist turn from reality. It's not a passive resignation. It's rather a confident expectation of frequent and fresh epiphanies. So this morning as we pause, I want to give you this epiphany invitation to rest in God's sovereign initiation and compassion, to rest in his call to us to simplify our lives, and to rest and to move in the direction of Jesus' invitation to follow him as fishers of men. Amen.